This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a, a crazy video of a bunch of skydivers jumping out of a plane, and which sent the, this King Air aircraft into a spin. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the aerodynamics involved there and how this uh, pilot just easily and pretty nonchalantly recovered from this. Pretty crazy video. Um, we'll talk about a ro- the Rolls-Royce has successfully demonstrated a 100% SAF powered flight. So talk about some of the uh, implications there, as well as, um, you know, just the the overall fuel consumption relative to SAF uh, globally. A little bit of uh, Boeing news. They've had some pretty high losses in the third quarter because of the 787. And we'll talk about Wright Electric uh, with a big press release about their plans for an all electric 100 seater uh, by 2027, making a lot of a lot of headlines. And then in the EVTOL segment, we'll talk about a unique box wing design coming out of Australia and some of Volocopter's plans uh, for testing over in Rome. Okay, so Alan, uh, this crazy video of a King Air dumping out a bunch of skydivers, I guess they really overloaded the side. Why would that cause a plane to go into a, into a stall? Well, I think two things were happening simultaneously. One is that they were using... They had reduced the th- the power on the left side engine, on the pilot side engine, uh, and so they're using the right engine to provide the thrust. It's actually not putting the skydivers in the prop wash, and then they had a bunch of skydivers hanging off the side of the airplane, which was blocking the uh, horizontal stabilizer, the left side of it. And so you really mess with the aerodynamics enough that. Uh, uh, it kind of stalled the airplane is what it did. Or, and because you just get this dynamic of uneven uh, tail uh, force? <laughs> and so the airplane kind of rolled over on everybody and, and all the skydivers let loose because you really had no choice at that point. They were getting dumped out of the airplane, whether they liked it or not. It, and uh, then the really fascinating piece of this video is you can see the airplane, uh, one, try to avoid skydivers as it's, it's descending and into this, a spin stall situation <laughs> and and you can kind of get an outsider's perspective of what that looks like and, and you know with the thing to do and what they, i think they did also is you want to reduce the the thrust on both engines put the nose down recover then apply power again that's a typical stall scenario uh so i haven't seen that before and i'm not even sure that the king air is rated to do that kind of maneuver i know the king air is just a really tough tough airplane it's, I'm sure it's been through all kinds of flight testing for as old as it is, but I wouldn't want to make a habit of doing that in a King Air. Uh, just you know, getting in odd spins and and changing the aerodynamic uh, performance of the aircraft is not something to play around with, and that's why they pay flight test pilots a lot of money to go do that. Yeah, well, the pilot sounded sounded really savvy. Just his quotes uh, in this article from AV Web. Um, but he, he mentions that he, you know, just tried to 
sort of smoothly ease out of it um, once he started his recovery maneuvers to avoid stress on the airframe. So what does he mean by that? What does that mean to avoid stress on the airframe? Like if he if he didn't do, um, you know, what, what is he what is he worried of, of doing to the aircraft? Uh, applying too many G's to the airplane, which it's only rated for a certain amount of positive and negative G's through the flight testing that they did when they certified the airplane back in the 50s. Uh, but there's certain limitations. And what you're afraid of is you're going to start bending the, the tail or start bending the wing spars and, and deforming it. And once you do that, you kind of make the airplane almost trash when that happens because uh, it takes a lot of inspection to go. If you over-G it, if you apply too many Gs, you've got to do a structural inspection on it because you may have cracked, warped, bent, something really important, and you don't want to fly it that way. Uh, and, that, and that's that's what they're talking about. So that's why in, in a lot of cases, like in this particular case, you want to kind of throttle down and not overload the airplane. But the the, the wild card here is you got like, well, there's like six, seven, eight guys uh, jumping out the back of this airplane. Like they're floating around with you in, in your immediate vicinity. The chances of you bumping into one of them is, is not zero. It's actually probably pretty high, right? Yeah, you know, you see that in movies where, you know, like, for example, James Bond will catch up to a falling airplane. I guess that is somewhat possible. Obviously, it's very, you know, movie-esque, not real life. But at the same time, you could fall faster as a human in a tuck, you know, kind of falling like a teardrop than a plane with its big wings kind of falling more slowly. So I I guess you're right that there is a non-zero chance that this plane could be kind of tumbling and hit one of these skydivers who's trying to, you know, catch air and float a little more than they are trying to go down like a bullet. So, yeah, that's a really scary scenario to think about that. Oh, here comes the plane after me. Good grief. Well, that's happened in military. And I believe, and it's been a long time since I've read these things. And, and, you know, what do you actually had something about uh, military aviation? Uh, But I thought there was a, a case or two in which people have ejected out of airplanes and the airplane has come back at them and either nipped them or gotten really close to them as the airplane crashes right and i thought for some reason in the back of my head it, it thinks like chuck that happened to chuck yeager at some point like he chuck bailed out and the airplane uh was in his general vicinity as he's descending yeah so you know running airplanes running into people are is a thing that 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 in theory can happen and i i do believe it has happened on the military side and hopefully it's never happened to the skydivers i'm i'm sure if we go back through the the records of all the skydiving accidents there's got to be one where a skydiver has been hit by the airplane somehow and and this 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 is a really dangerous situation obviously you you just never want to stall an airplane as people are jumping out of it that's just really really risky yeah crazy well moving on uh rolls royce has tested with a 747 um, a 100% sustainable airline fuel test. Obviously, this is a really hotbed issue right now. Uh, Alan, I don't know if you noticed, but did you hear about that um, world? Was it like a renewable energy conference that Jeff Bezos and many other world leaders, be called Jeff Bezos a world leader. Um, I mean, he's a leader in business for sure. I mean, he's one of the best businessmen of our generation, like him or hate him. Um, but people gave all these leaders a lot of flack for taking private jets to this meeting. And... You know, it's like you're not allowed to travel any any way, sort of way except by like oxen in today's society. But um, I digress. But, you know, people are talking about SAF a lot more. And I know Jeff Bezos, 
for one, he said that I used only SAF in my private jet, which he's got the money to do, <laughs> to do that, clearly. Um, but this is not typical. Yeah, I, I saw him say that. Uh, there was an announcement that like his effectively his private jets were like a neutral carbon footprint. So at least from that, that standpoint. Anyway, um, so yeah, again, t I mean, take it with a grain of salt, but I, I was reading some of these articles about just the rage about the carbon. It's like, this is, these private jet flights, sure, are more than if they all took commercial flights, but they're also about to donate lots and lots of money to environmental causes. And, um, you know, it, it's just unrealistic to ask. To, I mean, I guess here's a question for you that off, off a little bit off topic is, should private jets be outlawed because of carbon? I mean, there's just a lot of hatred between the super greenies and, and I think just a, a realistic, realistic view of the world right now and how people travel. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand the concern. And on some level, I agree that we should, you know, try to reduce the fuel burn and the carbon emissions that come from aviation. And aviation is, in general has done a really good job at that. I think that when it starts to feel uneasy is when you have two people flying on a large business jet that doesn't feel right to people. Uh, and okay, I, I kind of get that, but there are, there are a lot of business. Yeah. And there's a lot of business scenarios or even in insurance scenarios where like if, if the heads of a, like Amazon, you don't want to put all the heads of Amazon on a single airplane because if it crashes, every, you, the whole top level of Amazon is, is gone. So insurance wise, they don't, not allowed not to do it, but, uh, there's a lot of places where you have to get, particularly in the United States, that are not easy to get to, and it takes forever to get to, and time is money. And if you're trying to conduct business, having a business aircraft is the right way to do it because it's easier to get in out of, you know, uh, if you're not going to Dallas or Atlanta or Chicago or one of the major hubs, getting in and out of an airport can be a, a really hard time. If you're like going to Bismarck, North Dakota, if you had a business, business up there, you know, what are you going to do? You're probably going to fly something that's smaller and faster to get in and out just to save time. So it, it, there's a rationale for it. Uh, you know, the, the, the conference over in Ireland is a little bit of a different scenario because they're trying to do some political action. But, you know, I, 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 there's just no way you're going to remove a form of travel that is so ingrained into not only United States activities, business activities, it's ingrained in world activities impossible to back away from it now yeah yeah so back to rolls royce um you know the the usage of saf is still very very small um you know pre-covid we were consuming as a, as a as a planet 98 billion gallons of fuel uh in the aviation industry and that plummeted to 52 billion so almost cut in half um after covid and now it's recovering to to projection of about 60 billion gallons in 2022 I mean, what percentage of that do you see being SAF in the commercial sector, Alan? Well, I, I thought they were only allowed to use certain amount of certain blends on older motors, right? And so if you have a particular uh, jet engine, you're only allowed to mix a certain percentage. I only 50% right now. Up to 50%? Okay, that's a lot. All right. Um, yeah, but e even then, the production capabilities of SAF are really limited at the moment. So even if you wanted to make SAF universal tomorrow you couldn't do it because you don't have the infrastructure to to make it 
And I think that's going to be the limiting factor. It's not so much that aviation won't use it. And I think there's some drawbacks to it. But you just don't have the production facilities to make it. So you can't you can't use it. So what are you going to do? Right. If it's if you create such a huge demand for it uh, and you're only making say you're making 10 billion gallons, that's that's like roughly one tenth of the world's needs for it. So it takes time. And I, I've just seeing some articles about uh, the push to get it, get the U.S. to 100 percent SAF by 2030. Well, yeah, OK, if the airplanes will tolerate it, one and two, if you had the production capability to do it. You're nine years away from that or eight years away from that, roughly. It's going to be really hard to do that. Really hard to do that. Yeah. And then other concerns here, um, moving away from uh, renewable energy and and, and carbon um, emissions is uh, 5G, which seems like it would have, you know, like, I don't think any of us really think too much about what's flying through the airways, but um, the FAA has some concern about the new 5G network that AT&T or Verizon are planning to roll out here in the U.S. And of course, 5G networks are already uh, in operation in other some other countries, but uh, Alan, why did the FAA why why does the FAA have such pause right now and concern about this five G network? Well, anytime there's a spectrum uh, usage or a shift and who's using what spectrum, it can affect the FAA because the, F- the airplanes operate on all kinds of frequencies around the spectrum, and it, it, particularly if you have older equipment. In this particular case, radio altimeters, which are telling you how high the aircraft is above <laughs> the runway, uh, some of that older radio altimeters can be susceptible to 5G signals. So your radio altimeter is not working correctly. And it's not like the radio altimeter is using those frequencies. It's not. But the receiver reacts to those frequencies. So you'd have to... And what the FAA is saying is the 5G spectrum and how it's going to be used could affect airplanes, and in particular in a critical phase of flight, landing. And if the radio altimeter is not working, then that's, that's, a, that's a decrease in safety. That's not good. And to retrofit all these airplanes with some sort of filter so that it would block the 5G signals, well, one, you got to certify it. Two, you got to install it. Three, you know, you just the, the, the complexities of that are massive on a short time frame. So what the FAA is saying, like, like, okay, everybody slow down a minute because we we don't want to put airplanes at risk. We we could work on a solution. Wouldn't be all that expensive, but we have to mod a bunch of aircraft and make sure that we don't degrade the performance of the radio altimeters when we mod it. So there's just a lot of gyrations here. And we had a similar situation, Dan, several years ago with uh, GPS antennas and VHF radios, and there was a, there were some spurious emissions from the antennas, from the GPS antennas and systems, that would cause noise in the VHF communication radios. That was a big deal. And so it, they would, when we everybody figured it out, what they did was they separated the, the antennas. They actually physically moved the GPS antenna away from the VHF and put some rejection circuitry in there too to help get rid of it. So we're constantly monitoring for RF emissions and noise and system performance based on what's going on with the spectrum. I'm just shocked, and, and maybe, Dan, I'm wrong, that they're not slowing down. Like, the FAA is getting really concerned about this, and we're starting to see articles about it. 
because maybe there's a lot of consumer interest in having 5G yet, which I'm sure there is. But how are we going to mitigate the FAA's true problem? I'm, I'm not sure there's a, 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 a balance that has been made yet. Have you seen anything that says we're going to re- resolve this? No, and it said that the FAA doesn't have any real evidence that it is interfering or it will interfere. But yeah, I don't know how you test that either. I mean, how do you figure that out? You just get a bunch of planes with people on it and see if they see if they. I mean, yeah, test pilots or what? What are you doing? Yeah. So in in a in a in a case like Hector and I, (laughs) I've done on airplanes, you actually can simulate those environments uh, in a hangar somewhere or outdoors somewhere where you can simulate that effect to see if, if the aircraft reacts to that. Because my guess is if you think about airplanes and how old some of the electronics are in airplanes, you're having, there are airplanes that are flying around with electronics that was designed and manufactured probably in the 1970s. So you have 50 year old stuff, out there now, radio altimeter may be a different beast there, but it's going to be several decades old. It was never envisioned that 5G was going to be a thing, so I, I, you know, it's almost inevitable. There's going to be some systems that react to this 5G spectrum. That's why everybody needs to be checking it, and that's why the FA is so uptight and about managing that spectrum. And moving on, um, we're going to jump to Boeing here. So they posted a higher than expected third quarter loss. Uh, their 787 Dreamliner, which has been quite the embattled plane, um, has, you know, sent them into a, into a tumble. Um, Alan, is this going to just be continue to be a, a trend and a drag on their bottom line? It will be until they can get all the engineering and manufacturing issues resolved. I'm not even sure if the issues are sort of core to the design, or is it just a manufacturing issue on a training side that, that it, there seems to be a disconnect? Mm-hmm. They've had just problems with parts fitting together and the way they've been manufactured. Yeah, it seems like tolerances have been poor. Yeah, the tolerances are not quite there in the way they have to shim things together, which is an allowable process and it works really well. Uh, but it is a technique and it's something that needs to be refined and it takes training to do. But if, if there has been an escape in the way that uh, the, the structure put together or the way things are aligning or there is some sort of weird tooling issue or... Uh, parts becoming oblong from sitting out in a parking lot. There's, you know, you just got to fix that. And it's going to take engineers time. And that's what everybody hates is having engineers run around spending a bunch of time trying to solve it. And then secondarily try to put in processes and planning and manufacturing oversight quality systems that stop it from happening. Uh, That just takes so much time, way more than you would think, honestly. Um, and and that, that's what Boeing's paying the price is. I think, I think they know management, I'm sure, is not happy about this. I'm sure shareholders are not happy. But, Dan, I, I, th- I think it's going to take, from first notice of this, something significant major happening like this, six months to a year of just constantly working to figure out what the problem is and to resolve it. And in the meantime, it, it just hurts. Yeah, it just it just hurts. It's like fixing a building. Airplanes are so massive. If you were built a house and say you're building a, a tract of houses somewhere and you had uh, a roof joist that wasn't lining up right and causing you problems, well, you have to go back and fix all that. That's going to take a while. It's going to take a while to design it and engineer it right. Boeing's in the same situation. 
funny you use uh, buildings as an example. We've talked, I think, on our other podcast about the Millennium Tower, and that's in San Francisco, which is a luxury high rise. I mean, with ten million dollar condos in it, and it's been sinking. It wasn't, um, I guess, pile driven deep enough the foundation into the where it got to the bedrock, and so anyway, it's sunk and it's leaning slightly, and so they've been trying to fix it. And like you you said, uh, their initial fixes that they're doing right now, which is driving deeper piles into the ground, has actually caused the sinking to go faster. <laughs> so it's sinking even more. Now they're fixing it. And so they're like, wait, what are we doing? We need to stop. And so it just, yeah, it, it seems like a similar kind of parallel where things just weren't right. And now they're tinkering and doing things they think are going to fix it, but they're not fixing it. And it's getting really even more complicated. So so sorry if you own a $9 million condo in that building. Um, life's really hard for you right now. Um, and speaking of which, uh, Wright Electric has announced um, their 100-seat electric plane, and they, in the press, uh, believe it will be ready by 2027. And, of course, you know the Boeing thing just sort of highlights just how difficult it is to bring a, a, a new technology to market. The 787 is not even new. It's just high-tech. But I mean, Alan, is this a twenty twenty seven is really far away? Um, why is this in the news cycle now? Just I assume to help the startup get cash and and sort of get some momentum. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it right on the head. Uh, it's all about cash and momentum and people and enthusiasm and uh, getting the project off the ground. The if if you look at their website, which is really fascinating, by the way, uh, they're talking about making two megawatt motors and a two megawatt motor you think to yourself two megawatts like when we do a wind turbine podcast and a a two megawatt generator yeah a two megawatt generator is like the size of a of a car all right it's a big thing but this two megawatt motor is about the diameter i don't know about two and a half feet diameter maybe if that maybe a little tighter maybe two foot diameter like a trash can size diameter uh, for a motor, and you're like, man, there's a lot of energy going through that component, two megawatts, and what are you doing with all the heat, right? So I mean, the, t- the technology to power that is incredibly complicated. Uh, so it's going to take a couple years, uh, I think, to, to really flesh out the reliability of such a system and also to design it such they can withstand the rigors of all the different flight profiles it's going to be. But the other thing about this right uh, motor was it's not a propeller driven thing. It's like a, they're going to stick it in where like a, a jet engine would go. So it's like a ducted fan is what the concept is like, wow. Uh, I haven't really seen a lot of that lately. And uh, cause there's just some flight things Profiles with that on, on the aerodynamics just doesn't really play out very well. So it's it's interesting. I think the concept is really interesting. They're going to use a BAE one four six, right, which is the uh, British Aerospace four engine high wing jet aircraft, which at one point was the Queen's airplane. Like the Queen of England had one of those at, at, when she flew around. That's what she flew around in her own sort of private jet. So it's been around a long time. The airplane's very well proven. I've flown on that aircraft a couple of times. Uh, a nice airplane. Uh, so you, on the development side, I think they're making the right choice on picking an older airframe that they can modify to put the motors in. But 
Dan, don't you see this is going to take? If they have they have, if they have it done by twenty thirty, I think they're doing really really well. Don't you? Yeah, it seems like a really hard problem to solve. I mean, they and they like you said they they break it down really well on their website, uh, weflyright.com. Uh, it's obviously with a W. And but yeah, they have to. They're talking about breakthroughs in uh, their propulsion system, their inverters, um, you know, motor size, and I mean, there's just it seems like there's a lot of things that have to go really right for it to work the way they hope it does. And again, when you start to look at some of these, you know, how long has Boeing been around, and they can't get a traditional aircraft right. Um, and again, that not that that bodes poorly for any other company because they they have their own issues, but. Um, but yeah, it just, it just seems like it'll be a really difficult problem to solve. Um, but everyone does want electric planes. So, and like, like you've said a number of times, it's not a short time scale. It's a long timeline. So I guess the timeline makes sense. It's just, like you said, it's, it's a long way away and they're gonna have to have a lot of funding to, to stay, uh, stay on track. So moving on to our, our EV TOL segment today, we're going to talk about just two quick designs. So number one, there's a, a box wing EV TOL from AMSL Aero out of Australia. Alan, box wings, why don't we see these that much? I mean, they're they're out there, but what strikes you as unique about this design and do you think it's going to work? Well, a, a box wing is kind of a unique wing and you, you don't see it in any sort of production aircraft. I've only seen it sort of on radio control models uh but and i think the issue i think the issue with it is tends to be flutter that uh, without the right stiffness and dampening coefficients that the, the, the thing can kind of start to flop around and come apart which is why you don't do it uh but in this particular case i think these these guys have got it figured out and they actually have a prototype which was i I was shocked how far along this aircraft is because it seems like it takes a, a good bit of time on a unique aircraft configuration to put it together and to like do some validations on it aerodynamically to make sure the thing will fly. But they have almost a flying prototype. It's close. It, 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 I don't know when they're going to first flight this thing, but it's not that far off. And the, the unique feature of it is it, it, the the engines the their electric motors and propellers, uh, they pivot and basically the back half of the wing moves with the with the uh, motors. So you're kind of getting a change, quasi change in airfoil shape while you do this thing. So it's an it's an interesting concept. And what they're saying is its lift to uh, drag ratio is really high, which I I, I think that's right. And the the question is. Can you keep it stable enough and strong enough that it doesn't want to come apart? Which is what they're going to go flight test for sure. But is I also think the interesting piece of this is the Australia aspect of it. Because uh, you don't see a lot of aerospace technology coming out of Australia. So it's really good to see. You know, WISC was part Australian or is Australian now. And now we have this kind of a spinoff company, what it looks like. That's good. That's good. You know, getting Australia back in the airplane space is is good for australia it's good for everybody it's cool yeah well and the evtol model works there because you want to get to altitude quickly to prevent kangaroos from just jumping into the cockpit willy-nilly you know or if a herd of you know gigantic spiders is chasing you um you want to be able to you know take off just like in a movie where 
the, the world's collapsing behind our, you know, your heroes. He's trying or trying to get away. Um, I digress, but yeah, it is a really unique design. And like you said, they are, they do seem really far along. Um, you know, the, I don't know, you've talked about these open propellers being close to the cockpit and there's, they're surrounding this cockpit. I mean, is that really a, a big concern? I mean, obviously they're not going to fire it up till everyone's I'm sure safely inside, but, um, there's a lot of exposed propellers for sure. And like you said, if one breaks off, they all seem to be aimed kind of at this, uh, at the cockpit. Yeah. And that's, that's the concern, right? I think we've seen some other sort of single occupant, single pilots, uh, EV tolls that don't look mechanically stable and which also put the propellers close to the ground in certain flight regimes. Uh, yeah. I, I, and, that, and that's why I think, you know, that's why I think you see the betas and the Jobies and the Kitty Hawks and the whisks all kind of keep the propellers up above the passengers. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah. Getting too close to the ground is a problem. I, I think. Yeah. Well, last question is, I mean, obviously everyone wants to throw their hat into the ring and you know, they're, uh, they believe they have some unique flight characteristics and like you said, the power to weight ratio and, um, lift to drag ratio, stuff like that. Everyone thinks their design is really unique, but when you start to see designs that are pretty far off the beaten path, um, what are the advantages of, of doing it that way? Like, why not just sort of stick to the more conventional, like the Volocopters and the Jobies, um, like you've kind of discussed? Yeah, I think it's a it's a combination of are you using the materials wisely, the cost to manufacture it, uh, how big the the aircraft is, um, can you store it in a hangar or in a garage? If you're talking about single pilot operation here, those are things that matter, right? If I if you have to store your aircraft at an airport and you got to pay for the hangar, bah, 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 that all adds up versus if I can put it in my garage or just leave it out in the back of the house, that's a different thing, right? So in, in terms of sort of manufacturing costs, technology, operational costs, all those come into the aircraft design and it's not just one of them. I think that's why, you know, if you look at the Joby design, it seems to be headed towards an Uber environment. Like that's not going to be piloted by the general public at all or regular pilots. It's going to have very trained pilots. That's a specific marketplace they're going after. Everybody else is going after a specific marketplace. They're not all going after the same uh, set of people. And that's why you see the variation in designs because they're designing for, for, for a very specific set of pilots and a very specific uh, income level, I think, that can af afford these things. So you're going to see a lot more of these unique designs that, that are have odd what we consider odd constraints when we look at a 737 versus these EV tolls. They're just going to be totally different animals. Well, speaking of uh, Volocopter, they are uh, in a partnership with the city of Rome to try to get, bring their Volo City uh, EVTOL to, to life there. And that, of course, that's a relatively smaller one. It's got a top speed of 68 miles per hour. Um, it's got the 18 rotors on top, you know, kind of like that antlers kind of uh, configuration, which again, like seems like pretty safe out of the way, kind of like a helicopter. Um, but, you know, Volocopter seems to be moving pretty fast trying to get the the helipad or the, you know, the um, just the the little airport helipad, heliport, whatever you want to call it, getting 
you know, get that going. So, I mean, Alan, why do you feel like Rome is a good candidate for this? I think visibility. I also think traveling around. I have never been to Rome, but my understanding is traveling around Rome because of all the tourists can be very difficult to do. Uh, and so there's a certain income segment that can afford to fly across Rome to get to from place to place. And Volocopter is those guys on the marketing side seem to have their heads screwed on pretty straight. They're going where the marketplace is and they're demonstrating it where the marketplace would be. And they're trying to introduce it to the marketplace now, basically to capture market uh, a percentage of the marketplace as much as they can before everybody else catches up. Because Volocopter is what, two, three, maybe four years ahead of everybody else, so to speak, in terms of having a commercial operation. Maybe eHang is the only one that's would be their competitors on some but a different part of the planet, but they would be their real competitors today. So Volocopter is moving very quickly, and I think they make some really nice connections in Formula One in terms of being in that sort of higher-end marketplace, which is where Formula One likes to advertise in. Uh, I, I think it's just grabbing market share. And the success of any business, regardless of what it is, aircraft business, uh, car business, uh, building buildings. It's all about revenue and keeping the thing sustainable. So you got to start making cash, right? You got to start paying these things off. And Volocopter is trying to start paying the bills. That's a smart move. Very smart move. Don't you Don't you think so, Dan? Yeah. And of course, right now, the Volocity uh, EVTOL is it's on display in Piazza San Silvestro, right in the middle of the city of Rome. But of course, there's a, a caveat here which is that it will be a two-person capacity aircraft, one of whom is the pilot. So this is one passenger. So the the idea that people are, you know, if you're traveling, you want to see Rome, I mean, it's got to be a solo person, right? So this is, you know, if you're a couple seeing Rome, this isn't going to work for you. It's got to be one human going from to and back from the airport. But you've got you to start somewhere, right? Well, isn't Volocopter working on a larger passenger, of, like it's basically a four passenger three, uh, three plus one yeah and so but again it, it's smart move start getting it out there and if i think what they'll do is just start flying formula one race car drivers from their hotel to the racetrack in this thing it was just going to be a massive publicity uh capturing event it just brings up the name volocopter Right. It gets name recognition. It's part of that part of that sale. Right. And I think they're going after it. And w when they get the larger version of it, then you can take uh, your spouse or whoever else out to dinner somewhere. Uh, that's where they're going. And that's cool. And I know they'll see how it works. Right. I think there's a lot of uh, mileage to go yet. But in terms of being a leader, Volocopter is definitely out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. We'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.